Luke 15, we'll begin reading at verse 22. Let's read together, shall we? But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Father, open our hearts now that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches and pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. And I ask that you will bring them back. Send the Holy Spirit after them, I pray. Don't let one of them be lost. I pray these things in the only name that matters, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, the Bible records three stories Jesus told about things that were lost. First, he told a story about a man who had a hundred sheep and one of them was lost. So he left the 99 and went seeking the one lost sheep. When he found it, he threw it over his shoulder and brought it home. He called his neighbors together and they rejoiced because he had found the lost sheep. Jesus said that there was more rejoicing over the finding of one lost sheep than over 99 sheep that didn't need finding. Then Jesus told a story about a lady who had a necklace, or, or maybe it was a, a, a head decoration, something for her hair. In, anyway, whatever it was, it, it had 10 coins on it. And the 10 coins made it a unit, but, but she lost one of the coins. The woman searched the furniture, you know, she looked under the cushions on the couch, she swept the house diligently. She even lit a candle to look under tables and chairs. Eventually, she found the coin. When she found it, she called all the neighbor ladies who came over for coffee and cake, and they were all excited that the coin was found. They put it back where it belonged. Then Jesus tells the story from which our text is taken of a man who had two sons. The younger son had something of a wild, rebellious streak in him. In what would be considered an unthinkable act of dishonor in that Middle Eastern culture, he goes to his father and requests his share of the inheritance. In essence, he's saying that he wishes his father were already dead so he could get his part of the estate. This son does everything he can to break the relationship with his father. His conversations don't take place behind closed doors, but, but out in the open where even the servants can hear what's going on. He demonstrates a complete lack of care for anything to do with the entire family. Amazingly, the father grants his request. 
Whereupon the son further disgraces the family by quickly selling every property and possession he was given at a fraction of its worth, turning everything to cash. The son deliberately chose to wound his father's heart and break all his relationships with the family. It was the most scandalous thing that had ever happened in that little village. Well, you're, you're familiar with the story. The son leaves his home and goes to a far country among the Gentiles, where he proceeds to waste his inheritance by holding large banquets and giving out expensive gifts to earn a reputation for generosity, which was considered a supreme virtue among the people of that time. The opportunity to gain status in the eyes of new friends through an exercise of this virtue would be the highest kind of pleasure for such an individual. Well, the money didn't last forever. And about the time his resources ran out, there came a great famine in the land. Out of desperation, this boy took a job that no self-respecting Jewish boy would ever do, feeding pigs. Now, it's very interesting to me when I read these stories that when a sheep is lost, the shepherd leaves 99 others to find and retrieve the one that is lost. When a coin is lost, the lady sweeps the house and diligently searches until the coin is found. But when a human being is lost, the father just stays home. Now, now why would he do that? I mean, certainly a boy is as important as a lost sheep. Certainly a boy is as valuable as a lost coin. Then why, when a sheep is lost, do you go and bring it back to the fold? And when a coin is lost, do you search and put it back in a box where it's kept? But when a boy is lost, you just let him be lost. I mean, think about this. The father in this story is a wealthy man. He has servants, influence, clout, power. He, he had papers to sign and buttons on his desk and a cell phone ringing and emails dinging his inbox. He was a mover and a shaker. He could make things happen. You know, he could have called his servants together and said to his most trusted servant, big servant, Junior has run off with everything he had coming to him. He went to a far country where he's wasted the whole business. He's made a fool of himself and ruined our family name. Big servant, I want you to go and get him and bring him back here. So big servant goes to the far country, finds Junior, the good Jewish boy, out feeding the pigs. Big servant says to the boy, you smell like swine. Your daddy's very concerned about you. Come home. I'm not coming, says the son. Oh, yes, you are, says big servant. And he puts him in a hammerlock and marches him home, kicking and screaming the whole way and tosses him down on the living room floor. Just look at you, the father says. You totally disrespected me. You might as well have spit in my face. Couldn't even wait for me to die before demanding your share, you little ungrateful thing. 
As if that weren't bad enough, it only took you a few weeks and you wasted the entire fortune. You get up and get in your room and you sit on the edge of your bed and think about what you've done. And when you're ready to fly right, you can come out. So the boy goes to the back bedroom and what does he do? Why, he sits there on the bed just like boys and girls have always done and he talks to himself. He says, you know, dad's right. Wow. Isn't it wonderful to have your elders tell you the truth? Things you never thought about are pointed out by those who are older and more experienced. This is wonderful. I'm glad I found out in time before my life was completely ruined. What? What? Your child doesn't do that? (laughs) No way does he do that. Instead, that boy does what all boys and girls do. He sits on the edge of the bed and says, can you believe my dad? Wouldn't give me enough slack. Always crashing my party. I was going to be the Bob Evans of the far country. I was going to make it big in Jimmy Dean sausages. I mean, just about the time I'm ready for my big break, he comes and drags me off. You just wait till I get out of this back bedroom. I'll go back to that far country and I'll show him that out of touch old man just doesn't know what he's talking about. I'll do what I want to do because I want to do it. I don't need his help. I'll make it on my own. Hmm. You know, Psalm 8, 5 says that God has made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and majesty. Some translations even take it a little further, say that he has made man a little lower than God. I want you to get this. You aren't created just a little higher than the animals, but a little lower than the angels. And you have the image of God in you. Now, that's an important distinction. Because if you are only a little higher than the animals, then it's no wonder that you sometimes act like animals. It's no wonder that you aren't restrained. It's no wonder you aren't any better than you are. You've simply reverted. And you just need a little more training to get back to being a little higher evolved form of animal. But if you remember that you are made a little lower than the angels... Then you realize that the reason you sometimes act like animals, the reason you aren't any better than you are, is because you've fallen. You've fallen from your position of being a little lower than the angels. And the cure for fallen man isn't more training and better methods of education. It's not more motivation. It's not developing a more positive self-image. The cure for fallen humanity is redemption. You need somebody who can restore you back to your position of being a little lower than the angels. You see, the entire universe glorifies God. The whole thing is doing it right now, even without your permission. All the cosmos is moving in perfect concert and harmony. The physical laws of nature work cooperatively together, and they glorify God in their order. God created the heavens and the earth, and they work in perfect harmony and give God glory. But on the earth, there are these little two-legged jobbies who are able to stand back and say, I know the cosmos works in harmony. I know about the universe. I know about the physical laws, but I'm going to do what I want to do just because I want to do it. 
And do you know what the almighty God who made the heavens and the earth will do to a little two-legged jobby who says, leave me alone? He will leave him alone. God will leave him alone because he doesn't want to blur the distinction between sheep and coins and humans. As soon as God begins to treat men like sheep and coins and runs roughshod over man's ability to choose, he makes man into a mere puppet on a string. And man would not become a little lower than the angels, but simply a little higher than the animals. Things are pretty bad for this boy in the far country. But in verse 17, things start to turn around when it says, but when he came to his senses. Now, some people read that and think the boy is repentant. Not really. He was hungry and dirty and smelly and got to remembering there was plenty of food in his father's village and in his father's house. So he didn't say, I'm so sorry I've disgraced and brought shame to the family. I'm ashamed that I broke the relationship with my father and the rest of the family. Oh, no, oh, no. He still didn't care about that. He thinks the problem is lack of money. I ran out of money. If that's why I'm in this shape. It's not. That's not the problem. It's not lack of money. It's lack of relationship. It's the father's broken heart. Because he thinks the problem is a lack of money, he, he devises a scheme. It's a cunning, manipulative scheme. In this plan, he decides he's going to go back to his daddy's house, admit he sinned, but it's just words. It's just words. It's, it's like what Pharaoh did with Moses after the plague. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, Pharaoh hastily called Moses in and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Well, now, Pharaoh had no intention of changing his ways. He just wanted the plague to stop. And that's the same thing happening in this story. The boy isn't truly repentant. He just wants to put an end to his misery. So he makes up this little speech about his father making him one of the hired men. Now, understand, he's not offering to become a servant. He's trying to manipulate his father into writing him a letter of recommendation, endorsing him for job training so he can become a tradesman and can earn a wage. And now verse 20 is where the story really gets interesting. Because starting at verse 20, the story takes a most unexpected turn. And because we all know what happens next... It's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of those who heard it for the very first time. When Jesus starts talking about the boy returning home, everybody listening to him would expect the story to end with what was known as the Kazaza ceremony. The Kazaza ceremony was performed when a Jewish man left the community, went and lived with the Gentiles, and lost his wealth and property. If he dared return home, in this ceremony he would be publicly shamed. 
If he dared to come back home, the people would take him to the city gates and the older men would throw down a large clay pot and break it in front of him, symbolizing the broken relationship he had with the community. This separated him from his family, from his community, and from his faith. Thereafter, small boys would mock him. People would shun him. He would forever be marked as one who had been cut off. According to the tradition of the ceremony, while all of this was going on at the city gate, the father would stay home, emotionally removed from the proceedings, to see what the son had to say for himself. The mother could come to the ceremony and plead for mercy, but not the dad. Now, this is the way the people expected Jesus to tell the story, but he doesn't. Instead, when Jesus tells this story, the father ignores the custom and breaks all the rules. Before his son could ever enter the city, the father circumvents the Kazaza ceremony. In spite of his broken heart, he's not willing for his son to be shamed. So intent is he on restoration, he takes decisive action to prevent the possibility of his son being cut off from the community. Now, in our modern culture, we'll miss the significance of what's happening here. Verse 20 says, the father saw his son while he was still a long way off. This tells me the father never gave up on him. The father was watching for him. I just wonder how many days the father sat on the front porch looking down the road wondering if this would be the day the son would return. The verse also says the father had compassion on his son. Now that's an important word. Never in any part of the story is there even a hint of condemnation. Only compassion. Then the verse says that the father ran to the son. No eastern patriarch would ever run. That was considered disgraceful. A man of his age would always walk in a slow, dignified fashion. In order to run, he would have to lift up And take in his hand the front edge of his robe like a teenager. And when he did this, his legs would show. And that was considered to be a humiliating posture for a man of his age and stature in the community. People in the village square would be amazed when they saw this respected village elder shaming himself publicly. It's the father's compassion that leads him to hike up his robe and race out to his son. See, in in, I I wish I could help you see this. In that culture, the father would never make the first move toward the child, but he would always sit and wait for the child to come to him. Not this father. Oh, no. He knows what his son will face once he gets to the village. So he violates every protocol of dignity in order to welcome his son back home. The father doesn't care who in the village sees his bare legs. He doesn't care what protocol he breaks. He hikes up his robe, tears 
years off down the road, hastens to get to him before any thought of retribution can be applied. He takes upon himself the shame and humiliation that is rightfully due the son. He doesn't want there to be any mistake, any confusion that he is fully restoring his son back to the family. So the verse goes on and says the father embraced him and kissed him. Now, now, uh, not only did nobody in the village expect it, the, the boy didn't expect it either. He's no doubt taken back by all this. But, but he's got his religious speech all thought up, and he's determined to get it out. So he starts out, Father, 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 wait, wait. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but before he can get to that point, you know, the really groveling part about making him a servant, a hired, you know. The father interrupts him. Bring the best robe. This is, this is the, the robe the father wore on special occasions. He's dressing him in the father's personal robe. In his father's personal finery. The best robe. Bring, bring the best robe. Oh, and, and put a ring on his finger. Wait, wait a minute. The son pawned the family ring. This is the family signet ring, signifying that the son belongs and he has full inheritance rights again. Put that ring back on his finger and put some shoes on his feet. See, servants go barefoot. Only sons wear shoes. And kill the fattened calf and let's have a banquet. Throw a party. Let's have a barbecue. My boy is home. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. I'm not willing for my boy to be disgraced and cut off and outcast. With this robe and this ring and these shoes, I'm proclaiming for all to hear and see. He is fully restored to the family as my son. You know, I, I got to tell you this. Traditionally, this story has been called the parable of the prodigal son. That word prodigal means recklessly extravagant. Prodigal means lavish. And traditionally, that word has been used to describe the way the younger son in this story wasted such a large inheritance. But I want to suggest to you that the real prodigal in this story isn't the son. It's the father. It's the father. Because the point of the story isn't how much the son wasted. The focus of the story is on how much the father loved. How much the father forgave. How much the father restored. I tell you, it's the father who is prodigal, lavish, even recklessly extravagant with his love, his forgiveness, and his grace. <laughs> well, I'm certain you figured out by now that this story isn't just about a Middle Eastern patriarch and his wayward son. This is a story about you and the Heavenly Father. No matter how far you may have strayed, this story illustrates just how much the Heavenly Father loves you. His love is so great that He never gives up on you.
Even when you tell him to leave you alone, he never washes his hands of you. He never abandons you. He never forsakes you. When you are unlovable, he loves you. When you don't want him, he desires you. When you are helpless, he helps you. When you are in darkness, he brings you to the light. When you are in bondage, he frees you. When you are out of options, he shows up in the nick of time. When you run away from him, he lets you go. But he positions the Holy Spirit so that when you stop running, the love of God is already there waiting on you to receive you with open arms. This is what the psalmist was singing about in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you you. Oh, aren't you thankful for the extravagant, lavish, prodigal love of God? <laughs> the love of the Father is so great, so lavish, so extravagant, that he will allow you to squander your spiritual inheritance. He will let you reach your lowest point while never violating your will or insisting that you follow his plans. Yet at the same time, he will watch for you. He will wait for you with, with disappointment and grief and longing. But he will patiently wait until you come to yourself and make your way back to him. And oh, when you come. Oh, when you come. You don't have to clean up first. You don't have to make some religious speech of how you're going to do better. When you return, the Father will never remind you of how awful you've been. He will never shame you because of the disgraceful way you've behaved. He'll never condemn you for coming with, with the awful smell of the world on your clothes. His forgiveness is free. His forgiveness is full. His restoration is without reservation. I tell you today, God is willing for you to wander in the far country away from him. He's willing for you to squander the glory and honor with which you have been crowned. He's willing for you to settle for less than you could be if you had stayed close to him. He's willing for you to go your own way. He, he won't violate your free will. He thinks too highly of you for that. But when life throws you a curve, when there's no peace to be found, he still stands with his arms outstretched, inviting you to come home. There's always a place for you in the Father's house. The way that restoration happens is really very simple. The Bible says that the way to get to the Heavenly Father is through Jesus. 
See, Jesus lived on this earth so he could identify with your struggles. He understands your pain. And then he went to the cross and died and in that act paid the penalty for your sin that causes the relationship with the Heavenly Father to be broken. Because of Jesus, you don't have to clean up in order to come home. You don't have to answer all the questions and resolve all, resolve all the doubts before you come. You just need to come like you are. You will find the Father loving, accepting, and forgiving, rejoicing at your return. Perhaps I'm talking to someone who has at one time walked in relationship with Jesus, but but you've wandered away. Today is the day he's calling for you to return to the Father's house. Perhaps I'm talking to someone who has never surrendered your life to Jesus. And you find your life missing the peace, the joy, the, the sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that you long to know. Today is the day the Lord is inviting you to come to surrender your life to Jesus and begin the most incredible journey of following him. The invitation hymn writer, Will Thompson, wrote so beautifully, Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised. He promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. And the refrain keeps coming back from that song. Come home. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, oh sinner, come home. Bow with me, please. Oh Jesus, somehow let the truth of this message penetrate our hearts. And give us the courage and the faith to move in your direction. I pray, O oh Lord, for that person that you're speaking to their heart right now. I pray that you will bring them to their senses to recognize just how much you love them. I pray, oh Lord, I pray that they will respond to the invitation of your spirit, the prompting of your spirit. 
and they will move to you. And as they start toward you, Lord, I know, I know that you're not going to make them come all the way. Instead, you're going to run to meet them where they are and restore them to be all that you've called them to be. Right now, in the quietness of this moment, I'm not going to ask for a hand or for a standing or for somebody to come forward. I, I just want you in your heart. If the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you, just say to him in your heart, yes, I surrender to you, Jesus. And in that moment, you can experience the full restoration and know his forgiveness and his peace. Won't you do that? Just say yes to Jesus. Surrender to him. For someone who has done that before, but you've been wandering away, just turn around. You know how to do this. Just turn around. Don't stay in the far country. Come back to the Father's house. Thank you, Spirit of the Lord, for working in our hearts today. Thank you, Jesus.